Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, what's really threatening our democracy? Apathy? Ignorance? Well, I don't know and I don't care. No, the organizers of last year's DEFCON Voting Village, a corner of an annual conference where hackers easily hacked into electronic back ballot boxes, are preparing for a similar session at this year's event, according to the uh, British tech journal, The Register. Finnish programmer and village organizer Harry Husti said the team was having trouble getting voting machines to compromise for this year's Hackfest because manufacturers aren't eager to sell machines that could expose their failings. In some cases, the manufacturers sent letters to people selling election systems on eBay, claiming selling the hardware was illegal, which is not true. His team, Hursty, Finnish programmer, is still scouring the web for, for, for voting gear. One e-cycling company had bought 1,300 voting machines, he said, which it acquired when the ceiling of the warehouse in which they were being stored collapsed. We found the company had already sold 400 of the machines, in some cases back to counties, for voting duties, he says. One of the machines was duly bought for the hacking competition. The seller is also touting packets of 25 official election machine seals for the state of Michigan for less than $5. You'd think, said the uh, Finnish programmer, you could only buy these if you had a government ID and were in the state of Michigan, but no, anyone can buy these. Another member of the DEFCON village voting team, Margaret McAlpin, found complete lists of the default admin passwords for electronic ballot boxes in their training manuals. Election officials in one such manual are instructed not to change the default password, and if someone had already, to reset passwords to the defaults. This manual covered machines used to count 18% of the votes in U.S. elections, according to the register. Screw the Russians. We can muck up our elections all by ourselves. Because USA, USA, hello, welcome to the show.
Celebrating the number 25 for personal reasons, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, views of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol, Jr. Well, next Olympics, as you probably know, is in Tokyo. Asia is running the whole Olympic thing for a while. And this week, a Tokyo Olympic official promised a clean games. No, not what you think. He's pledging to improve water quality in the venue for marathon swimming and triathlon. Oh, and also to ban four large Japanese construction companies that have been charged with colluding on bids. So clean both ways. But not about the doping. Toshiro Moto, the CEO of the Tokyo Olympics Organizing Committee, uh, spoke at a meeting of the executive board. Last year, E. coli concentrations were found to be 21 times above the accepted limit in Tokyo Bay. That's just the venue for triathlon and marathon swimming. Swimming, I said. Fecal coliform bacteria were also detected, but not fetal. Interesting. Officials have blamed much of the problem on heavy rains last year. A surprise sanitation problem in a country known for cleanliness. Ask me about that sometime. Organizers say underwater screens will be experimented with this year. Why not on ice wall? It's worked so well at uh, Fook. We're going to put in place some special filtering screens in the water to shield any impurities, Muto said. We think that's probably one of the effective measures we can take. I say ice wall. Tests carried out last year showed water quality standards required for marathon swimming were met on only 10 of 26 days and only 6 of 26 days for triathlon. So I'll take marathon. Muto said organizers would make sure that water quality is a high level. The IOC has mentioned water quality as one of Tokyo's few problems. As you may recall, the, the Rio Olympics were plagued by severe pollution in Guanabara Bay, the venue for sailing. Muto said also that four companies have been banned by the Tokyo Metropolitan Government for bid rigging, and they would not be involved in future bids on Olympic projects. Tokyo prosecutors pressed charges, in fact, this past Friday against the four companies for allegedly colluding. Tom? Uh, they were colluding? Yes, they were colluding on bids for a high-speed train line. The four are also major contractors on Tokyo Olympics projects. For the time being, said Muto, we will refrain from offering new contracts to the four companies. And then he hedged, saying the companies might be allowed to join new bidding if their participation is needed to meet Olympic deadlines. The deadlines, he said, cannot be moved. Well, of course not. It's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. I wonder if the water knows it has to meet that deadline. Ladies and gentlemen, I think it was in the New York Times this week, apropos of uh, one of the stories I'm about to share with you, that we learned, at least I learned for the first time, that uh, Saudi Arabia, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia, that Saudi Arabia is known in some circles because of the huge size of the royal family and its relatives as the land of 15,000 princes. So news of our friends 
our freedom-loving friends in the land of 15,000 princes. Rupert Murdoch, this past weekend, hosted a dinner for Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman at his, oh no, it's going to be uh, Monday night at his Bel Air estate. The list includes the head of Disney, the head of Warner Brothers, the uh, 32-year-old prince, Prince Salman, not King Salman, that's his dad, and it's not, not in season yet. He's courting American business leaders and investors as part of his effort to modernize Saudi Arabia's economy. His West Coast swing also includes meetings with Jeff Bezos in Seattle and Tim Cook in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. The prince has uh, said he's going to end Saudi Arabia's 30-year ban on movies and movie theaters. Hence his meeting with movie moguls. And he's also going to be investing. The top U.S. general in the Middle East, meanwhile, testified before Congress this week and dropped a couple of uh, bombshells. He says, says General, general Joseph Votel, that he supports the agreement, the Iran nuclear deal. But also, in a stunning exchange with Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, Votel admitted that CENTCOM, that is Central Command, and Votel is the top general in the Middle East. He says Central Command doesn't know when U.S. fuel and munitions that we send to Saudi Arabia are used in Yemen, where thousands and thousands and thousands of civilians are dying. Every, general Votel, does CENTCOM track the purpose of the missions it's refueling? Asked Senator Warren. In other words, where a U.S. refueled aircraft is going, what targets it strikes, and the result of the mission? Senator, he replied, we do not. She followed up, citing reports that U.S. munitions have been used against civilians in Yemen. General Votel, when you receive reports like this from credible media organizations or outside observers, is CENTCOM able to tell if U.S. fuel or U.S. munitions were used in that strike? He replied, no, Senator, I don't believe we are. Because we're friends with the land of 15,000 princes, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Some good news. Unless you own an oil company, wind farms and solar panels produced more electricity than... Britain's eight nuclear power stations for the first time at the end of last year, according to official figures reported by The Guardian. Britain's greenhouse gas emissions also continued to fall, dropping 3% last year as coal use fell. There it is falling right now. And the use of renewables climbed. Energy experienced the biggest drop in emissions of any UK sector, 8%. Pollution from transport and businesses stayed flat. Energy efficient uh, energy industry chiefs said the figures show the government should rethink its ban on onshore wind subsidies. Well, let's subsidize everybody, shall we? By the way, if you're uh, thinking there's no real uh, nobody's making, as the real estate people say, they're not making any more land, and uh, it's just getting more expensive to find a, a place to live. Here's good news: the Sahara Desert is expanding. They're making more of that. It's expanded by about 10% since 1920, according to a new study by University of Maryland scientists. Research is the first to assess century-scale changes to the boundaries of the world's largest desert, and it suggests other deserts could be expanding as well. 
Let's all be desert. Let's be desert rats. Come on. The study was published online in the Journal of Climate. Deserts are typically, def- well, you know what deserts are. The researchers analyzed rainfall data recorded throughout Africa from 1920 to 2013, found that the Sahara expanded by 10% during this period. When the authors looked at seasonal trends over the same time period, the most notable expansion occurred in summer, <laughs> resulting in a nearly 16% increase in the desert's average seasonal area over the nearly century span covered by this study. Our results are specific to the Sahara, but they likely have implications for the world's other deserts, says lead researcher. The study suggests human-caused climate change as well as natural climate cycles, such as the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, your AMO, caused the desert's expansion. The geographical pattern varied from season to season, most notable differences occurring over the uh, northern and southern boundaries. So... Let's let's all move to the desert. New data show that extreme weather events have become more frequent over the last 36 years, with a significant uptick in floods and other hydrological events compared even with five years earlier. According to a new publication, Extreme Weather Events in Europe by the European Academy's Science Advisory Council. This is reported by Eureka Alert. Given the increase in frequency of extreme weather events, The European Academy Science Advisory Council calls for stronger attention to climate change adaptation across the European Union. Well, not Britain, then. Leaders and policymakers, they say, must improve the adaptability of Europe's infrastructure and social social systems for changing climate. The number of floods and other hydrological events have quadrupled overall on the globe since 1980 and have doubled again, or have doubled at least since uh, 2004, highlighting the urgency of adaptation to climate change. Climatological events, such as extreme temperatures, droughts, and forest fires, have more than doubled since 1980. Meteorological events, such as storms, have doubled since 1980. And a marine heat wave... Those marines are hot. No, a marine heat wave in Western Australia eight years ago set off a massive carbon bomb damaging the world's largest seagrass meadow, releasing millions of tons of carbon that had been collected for thousands of years below the surface, according to The Guardian. Although Australia doesn't currently count carbon released from damaged seagrass meadows in its official greenhouse gas emissions, if it did, the results mean those figures might need to be revised upwards by more than 20%. Seagrass, well, you know seagrass. It's a flowering grass-like plant that grows in shallow waters. It gathers carbon dissolved in the sea and buries it below the surface. Unlike forests that store carbon for about 60 years before releasing much of it, seagrass meadows often store the carbon carbon for thousands of years until they're disturbed. That process is thought to offset up to 2% of humanity's greenhouse gas emissions. So don't disturb the seagrass. And now, an early onset, Apologies of the Week. Steve Smith is a member of the Australian national cricket team. He returned home this week after a ball-tampering scandal that rocked Australian cricket and had a tear-filled news conference at the Sydney airport. It sounded something like this. To all of my teammates, to fans of cricket all over the world, and to all Australians who are disappointed and angry, I'm sorry. What happened in Cape Town has already been laid out by Cricket Australia. 
Tonight, I want to make clear that as captain of the Australian cricket team, I take full responsibility. I made a serious error of judgment and I now understand the consequences. It was a failure of leadership, of my leadership. I'll do everything I can to make up for my mistake and the damage it's caused. If any good can come of this, if it can be a lesson to others, then I hope I can be a force for change. I know I'll regret this for the rest of my life. I'm absolutely gutted. I hope in time, I can earn back respect and forgiveness. I've been so privileged and honored to represent my country and captain the Australian cricket team. Cricket is the greatest game in the world. It's been my life and I hope it can be again. I'm sorry and I'm absolutely devastated. One of his teammates had used sa smuggled sandpaper onto the pitch, as they call the uh, playing surface, to uh, scuff up the ball. And he's sorry. Mark Zuckerberg has apologized many times, it turns out, according to Fast Company. He, uh, before he started Facebook, at Harvard, he started FaceMash, a site that briefly let his fellow students rate, rate each other's looks. He apologized. I hope you understand. This is not how I meant for things to go, and I apologize for any harm done as a result of my neglect to consider how quickly the site would spread and its consequences thereafter. I definitely see how my intentions could be seen in the wrong light. Then he starts Facebook, opens it up to everyone over the age of 13, aggregating activity from each member's friends into a new feature called the News Feed. Some users find it creepy. In a post entitled Calm Down, We Hear You, Zuckerberg informs the users, or the used, that they're worked up over a work in progress that doesn't make the service less private. But then he says, after a few days, we really messed this one up. Somehow we missed this point with newsfeed and minifeed, and we didn't build in the proper privacy controls right away. This was a big mistake on our part, and I'm sorry for it. December 2007, Facebook develops a strategy to monetize its 50 million users, introducing Beacon, a technology that automatically tells your friends about your activity at third-party sites like Epicurious and Travelocity without getting permission or allowing opt-out. We've made a lot of mistakes building this feature, but we've made even more with how we've handled them. He admits in a blog post, we simply did a bad job with this release, and I apologize for it. The feature disappears altogether after less than two years. May 2010, Facebook privacy violations are again in the news as the Wall Street Journal's reporters say the company divulged unique user IDs to advertisers which can be used to track consumers. He publishes a Washington Post op-ed allowing that the company's privacy options, quote, just missed the mark, but underlining the company's goal is to make the world more open. 
We will keep building, we will keep listening, and we will continue to have a dialogue with everyone who cares enough about Facebook to share their ideas. September 2010. Months after Silicon Valley Insider publishes old instant messages in which Zuckerberg makes incendiary remarks, calling the earliest Facebook members dumb Fs for trusting him with their information, he issues kind of an apology with the New Yorker's Jose Antonio Vargas. He absolutely regrets the six-year-old exchanges, but shouldn't be judged by them. If you're going to go on to build a service that is influential and a lot of people rely on, then you need to be mature, right? I think I've grown and learned a lot. November 2016, at a conference days after the U.S. presidential election, Zuckerberg dismisses concerns about Facebook's role in its outcome. People are smart, and they understand what's important to them. February 2017, he publishes a 5,000-word manifesto that never mentions Donald Trump by name, but does allow Facebook has been overwhelmed by the task of policing its content on a variety of fronts. September 2017, Zuckerberg says the fact that both the president and his critics are mad at Facebook shows the service is a form for free expression. He backpedals on his initial comments about the possibility that misinformation on Facebook influenced the election results. Calling that crazy was dismissive, and I regret it. This is too important an issue to be dismissive. Also, same month, he atones for his own failings on the la- on Yom Kippur in a Facebook post, post, but also mentions others abusing Facebook for device, abusing Facebook for divisive means. For those I hurt this year, I ask forgiveness, and I will try to be better. I ask for forgiveness, and I will work to be better. October 2017, after Puerto Rico was devastated by Hurricane Maria, he broadcasts a video in which cartoon versions of himself and a colleague teleport to witness the damage. Commenters criticize the effort as insensitive. He chimes in via comment of his own to say his goal was to show VR's potential for increasing empathy. Reading some of the comments, I realized this wasn't clear, and I'm sorry to anyone this offended. January this year, Facebook has a lot of work to do. No kidding. He's getting good at it. Groupon, another website that uh, uses... Well, it gives you discount coupons on purchases. Uh, published a um, listing of some uh, shoes that use the N-word repeatedly. It was to, used to describe, according to the Daily Beast, the color of several pairs of boots on an e-commerce site um, based on Chinese-based enterprises in addition to other third-party sellers. A spokesperson for Groupon told Insider.com the product description containing the N-word was provided by a third-party seller via the company's self-service platform. Regardless, this is completely unacceptable, unacceptable and violates our policies to say nothing of our values. We are appalled that this language was displayed on our site. Language like this has no place on Groupon, and we're strengthening our self-service controls to ensure it doesn't happen again. Apology by Groupon. In Atlanta, Charter School has apologized for a black history program that featured second graders with masks depicting them in blackface. The Kindesi School said it will provide cultural competency training for teachers after parents expressed concern about the performance during which children recited Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, We Wear the Mask, while holding up masks that looked like minstrel show makeup. 
The school said it is investigating the matter and is committed to making sure this never happens again. It apologized and accepted responsibility for the hurt, anger, frustration, and disappointment caused by the poor judgment we made in having students use face uh, use masks that mimic blackface. Next time, just actually paint their faces. A Malcolm Bridge Middle School teacher in Georgia has resigned after inadvertently displaying pornography in his classroom earlier this month. A sixth-grade teacher who had also coached softball informed Oconee County, Georgia schools of his resignation. He'd been absent from the school since March 22 while they investigated the principal, Mary Blackburn, emailed comments with details of the incident. Last week, there was an unfortunate incident where an image of a topless adult female inadvertently appeared on a projection screen in one of our classrooms. The teacher closed the image and resumed teaching for the remainder of the class. Blackburn said the teacher self-reported the incident that day, and a thorough review by technology personnel found no other inappropriate images. Blackburn called the parents whose children were in the room to discuss the incident. I apologize that this inappropriate incident occurred, she said. If you have concerns specific to your child, please do not hesitate to contact me, and I will take off my... No, no, she did not say that. Dateline Blacksburg, Virginia, Virginia Tech's women's lacrosse coach has apologized after a video surface showing white team members singing a song by Lil Dicky that prominently features a racial slur. Coach John Sung apologized for his team's actions and said members of Virginia Tech's athletic administration have met with the team and is confident players will learn from this mistake and understand that these actions reflect poorly on our women's lacrosse program. A radio host in San Diego is poised to make his debut in that city, apologized for a promotional tweet that centered around a gag about suicide jumps off the Coronado Bridge. Kevin Klein, scheduled to begin a new show on 97.3 FM, tweeted a photo of the bridge overlaid with text urging, urging listeners to jump to a new morning show. The tweet was posted Monday night and deleted by late Tuesday morning, resulted in swift backlash from many San Diegans. I'd like to sincerely apologize to San Diego and listeners of 97.3 for a distasteful and insensitive social media post. Klein said on his Twitter page, The comment was reprehensible and inexcusable. I've failed at making a good first impression, but I hope you'll give me another chance to provide entertainment and good-natured laughs when I go on the air Thursday morning. More than 400 people have jumped to their deaths since the bridge went up five decades ago. But Klein wasn't in town for that. You know, DJs, they travel. Killer Mike, a rapper, posted two videos Sunday apologizing for a video interview he did with the National Rifle Association. The rapper, who was born Michael Render, Michael Rendy, had faced backlash after NRA TV shared the piece on the same day the March for Our Lives rallies were held across the country. He said the interview had been shot a week before. The rapper has speak, frequently spoken out on various topics, including police brutality. He criticized in the video National School Walkout Day, in which students left classes to pay tribute to the 17 people killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School a month earlier. I'm sorry that in an interview I did about a minority, black people in this country and gun rights was used as a weapon against you guys, he said. That was unfair to you and it was wrong and it disparaged some very noble work you're doing. 
Savannah Guthrie is asking today viewers to forgive her in what appeared to be a production mistake. The NBC Morning Show co-host was heard saying S blank blank T. Sorry, guys, while preparing for a segment on the live broadcast. It wasn't long before she apologized for the incident in a humorous tweet. Check, check. Is this thing on? Yeah, I guess it is. So sorry, guys. Thanks for being kind and understanding. And I guess it's a good thing I don't wear a mic all day. She then added the hashtag, hashtag, oh, darn. The mayor of Vancouver, Gregor Robertson, will formally apologize next month for past discrimination against residents of Chinese descent. The apology will acknowledge the wrongdoings of past legislation, regulation, and policies of previous Vancouver city councils. And Wichita, Kansas police chief has apologized after explosives were used in training exercises in a residential area. Boom. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. I want to step right out and tell you, but I know it's not allowed. Truth is, you're all that I can see in the middle of this crowd. I want to tell you that I'm thankful for your fingers on those strings. want to whisper low into your ear all these forbidden things. But I'll stand right here and hold my tongue. For all I know, I'm the only one. But do you feel this undercurrent and the changing of the tides? When I'm with you, baby, we got everything to hide When I'm running out of time is when I want to do it all When you're running through my mind is when I want to hear you call Well, you're always running through my mind, so why don't you call now? It ain't right, but it feels good. Let's do this anyhow. But I'll stand right here and hold my tongue. For all I know, I'm the only one. But do you feel this undercurrent and the pulling of the tides? When I'm with you, baby, we got everything to hide. Childish hopes within But you said hope is always there So what's a girl to do? I should quit while I'm ahead But I ain't through with you I guess I'll stand right here And hold my tongue Maybe I'm not the only one Cause do you feel the sun when I'm with you, baby, we got everything to hide. So pour another, baby, we got everything to hide. 
Well, it's a holiday weekend and a particular holiday weekend, a time of year when we're all encouraged to think of cute little animals like bunnies. But uh, consider this, ladies and gentlemen, no little animal is cuter than the wallaby, the adorable Australian marsupial that, excuse me, what? On a holiday weekend, we had a cute animal feed. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm informed we have uh, an incoming call on the Newsmaker line. Kind of have to take it, so the uh, the baby wallaby will have to stand by. Hello, you're on the air. Mr. Sweden. Oh, I think I recognize this voice. Uh, well, of course you recognize this voice. This is Shab Shab. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's been several years since we've heard from you. Yes. New listeners, um, you should know, this gentleman started calling in around the start of the Iraq War. He had been one of Saddam Hussein's, what was it, 32 lookalikes? Yes, and it was not easy maintaining that mustache, Mr. Shere. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, and, and since the toppling of Saddam, he's been uh, keeping us informed on his life in the new Iraq. But as I say, uh, we, we haven't heard from you in quite a while, Shab Shab. Yes, I have been extremely busy liquidating my high-end audio equipment business, Mr. Shere. Oh. I haven't had time for the niceties of life, like expensive calls to obscure public <laughs> radio programs in the United States. Well, not not quite obscure, but well, I take your meaning. Well, so, you got out of the high-end audio business? Mr. Sharia, mm. there is one thing without which you cannot enjoy any kind of audio high-end or, or normal consumer garbage. And that would be, what, CDs and vinyl? That's two things. Well, no, the one thing is electricity. Mm. Without electricity, all high-end audio can offer you is high-end high end silence. silence. Yeah, got it. Yeah. But I thought in Baghdad by now, what with... What with what? What with what? What? Uh, one of us has to stop. Ugh. Mr. Shreer, we have 10 hours a day of electricity here. Mm. We are approaching summertime again. Mm. What do you think even the most affluent Iraqi is going to do with those 10 hours? Listen to a pristine recording of Tosca on beautiful tube-driven electronics mm. or blast the freaking AC? Okay. Good question. Well, I know you didn't call just to complain about the electricity. Mr. Sharir, yes. it has been 15 years since your country invaded mine. I called to give you a status report on Iraq 15 years on. Hmm. Well, I would say that, that that's a little superfluous, what with all the media attention to Iraq 15 years on, except that there hasn't been nearly any. So uh, thank you, Shop Shop. Now, yes. as I recall, you had had plastic surgery to look like Saddam's successor. To yes, carry on with your... Yes, man, many people indicated that I was the spitting image of Mr. Al-Maliki. Really? Did they did they say that to you? No, they spat at me. But Mr. Sharir, well, look, I, I just yes. want to follow up on this. Yes. You haven't had plastic surgery to look like the current leader, Mr. Al-Abadi, have you? Sir, neither of our leaders had Saddam's proclivity for avoiding public appearances. The look-alike business has tanked faster than MySpace. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay. So in terms of Iraq, 15 years on... Yes. What are you doing now, Shab Shab? I'm talking to you! No, no, no. I mean, what are you doing for a living? I'm a tech startup. I have a business called OldIraq.com. OldIraq.com. And I'm glad you asked. We sell artifacts of pre-invasion Iraq mm. recovered from the museums and galleries of the country. Sculpture, statuary, household items from the Mesopotamian era, ancient waffle irons. When, when you say recovered from them. Yes, okay, I mean looted. Okay. But somebody's got to sell them, and at least if they're sold through oldiraq.com, as opposed to the black market, taxes can be paid on them, although not by me. Okay. All right, now you'd mentioned electricity. I read yesterday that Iran 
was helping to supply electricity to some Iraq cities near the border. Yes, as you know, Mr. Ferrier, we have a government very much aligned, shall we say, with our Iranian neighbors. Well, now this, just a few years after Iraq and Iran fought a decade-long, very bloody war, right? Imagine, Mr. Ferrier, mm-hmm. if... After your civil war, yep. your government was run by sympathizers of the losing side. I can't even begin to imagine that. But but uh, speaking of Iranians, they, of course, are a Shiite country. A lot of the resistance to the new Iraq came from Sunnis who'd been favored under the old Saddam Hussein regime. It was Sunnis who seemed to be the biggest part of the so-called Islamic State. President Trump, <laughs> President Trump now says that the Islamic State has been one of his... If in one of his favorite words, decimated. Yes. So what are relations like now between Sunnis and Shiites? Mr. Shreya, mm-hmm. I know enough from reading American papers by candlelight, I should add, to know that your baseball season has just begun. That's correct. It is a sport which bewilders much of the rest of the world. But I would say we are like Yankees fans and Mets fans or Cubs fans and White Sox fans. We stay on our side. They stay on theirs. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that former Vice President Biden had often said that, uh, in his view, Iraq would uh, probably end up being broken up into a Sunni land, a Shiite land. And the part with the oil, yes, I know, Mr. Sharir. And, of course, this is a country that was made up by the British and the Turks at the end of World War I. Mm-hmm. But there is an Iraqi spirit that you can feel just being in the presence of an ancient pottery shard or other liberated artifacts at oldiraq.com. It, 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 it's public radio, Shab Shab. You can't sell anything but ideas here. But uh, So wrapping up because it's uh, told almost the baby wallabies nap time. If you had to summarize whether Iraq is better off or worse off mm-hmm. after 15 years, what would you say? You know, we have the original mission accomplished banner, too. It's in near new condition. Just one bullet hole. Just, 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 just if you would respond to my question. Mr. Scherer, let me take this down to the personal level. Mm-hmm. If it had not been for this invasion, this war, this bloodshed, this destruction, this sea of refugees, this erection of endless barricades across the streets of my beautiful Baghdad, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would never have gotten to know you telephonically, well. and I would never have been able to build up an international mailing list. So, so no, but, but, but it wasn't a cakewalk? It wasn't an entire bakery walk, mm. but I'm a philosophical man, as you may have noticed. Mm-hmm. And focusing on the failures of the past prevents us from embracing the failures of the future. Shab Shab, thank you for calling. I hope we can uh, talk again on the 30th anniversary. There's a 25th anniversary sale at oldilark.com this weekend. I am told that the baby wallaby has fallen asleep, so the show continues. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an... Inspector General. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. U.S. officials. I know. Are you sitting down? You, you better sit down for this because it's from the Military Times. U.S. officials did not effectively manage $3.1 billion of U.S. funds provided to the Afghan government. No. Really? This is according to the Department of Defense Inspector General, who released a part report Wednesday. It was the last in a series of audits by the IG that identified systemic challenges in how officials oversee funding to the government of Afghanistan for fuel, ammunition, vehicles, and other commodities. 
like peppers. In one such instant of misuse, officials did not implement controls to properly account for and maintain vehicles provided by the Defense Department to Afghan National Defense and Security Forces. For example, an Afghan National Defense vehicle that was reported as destroyed in battle and removed from the property books was later brought in for maintenance. Well, that could happen anywhere. Additionally, the DOD spent roughly $21 million to replace engines and transmissions on vehicles in Afghanistan because U.S. officials did not provide sufficient training to the Afghan National Police to independently maintain its fleet of vehicles. Well, you just turned the thing, right? In another revelation, the DOD IG noted that since 2005, U.S. officials obtained approximately 95,000 vehicles for the defense forces. However, officials did not have an accurate inventory of the vehicles. Well, that would mean you'd have to... U.S. officials could not determine the types and quantities of vehicles transferred to Afghan forces, nor did they have controls in place to ensure that Afghan Ministry of the Interior and Defense officials consistently followed proper accountability procedures. Well, why, why would they have to when we don't? The issues identified in the report were found to have occurred largely for two reasons. A... Stupid. No. First, U.S. officials did not establish a realistic, a realistic and achievable conditions for Afghan ministries to meet in order to receive funds. Second, U.S. officials did not enforce noncompliance penalties that did exist due to fear negatively impacting the Afghan security forces' readiness. Additionally, U.S. officials stated they could not oversee all bilateral financial commitment letter requirements because of inadequate staffing. As a result, officials did not have assurance that $3.1 billion in U.S. direct funding was used entirely for the intended purposes, according to the Inspector General, you see. A new Watchdog report reveals that the Department of Veterans Affairs employed thousands of workers at medical facilities without properly performing background checks. The Inspector General report faults the VA for employing an estimated 6,200 workers over five years through 2016, so this would not be under the current administration, who did not go underground, uh, sorry, sorry, did not undergo background checks within the mandated first 14 days of their employment. Some of them were on the job for years before a proper background check was completed, many with access to personal and private data of America's veterans. You'd think maybe you could let the vets vet them. They're there. In one case, a registered nurse was on the job at a VA facility in Ohio for nearly four years before undergoing the review without completed background checks to determine employee suitability, says the IG. The VA lacks assurance that the VA workforce is properly vetted and appropriate for providing health care to the nation's veterans. In addition, initiating background investigations in a timely manner is critical to mitigate the risk to Veterans Administration and ensure that unsuitable staff may be removed during the probationary employment period. Investigators blame the backlog on the VA's Operations Security and Preparedness Office, which they say is rife with mismanagement and lack of oversight. Officials in that office told the IG that it hopes to reduce the backlog by October to 2,500 employees that are unvetted. And when then-FBI Director James Comey testified before Congress about Apple refusing to unlock the cell phone of a suspect in the 2015 San Bernardino terrorist shootings, he was incorrect, but he didn't lie. That's the nuanced conclusion from a Department of Justice Inspector General report. 
The FBI exhausted all avenues to break into the cell phone before taking Apple to court. That's what Comey said. It was not borne out by the facts because one part of the FBI was buying an off-the-shelf solution to crack the iPhone while another part of the FBI didn't know that was happening. And now, news of our friend the Atom. Well, the South Carolina saga of people, consumers, citizens being charged money to uh, pay for new nuclear plants, which are never going to be built, continues. Now, a Virginia power company, Dominion Energy, Dominion, says if South Carolina legislators pass a bill removing the monthly charge for the two nuclear plants that will not be built, it will withdraw an offer to buy the South Carolina Power Company. Dominion Energy CEO Tom Farrell says the company's offered to return up to $1,000 to the customers and promise not to raise rates for three years is fair. State senators started debating a proposal that would remove the $37 million a month that South Carolina Electric and Gas charges for the nuclear plants that were abandoned last summer after 10 years of planning and construction. The bill has passed the House. Customers of the power company have already paid about $2 billion for reactors which will never be built. A report by the uh, South Carolina newspaper, The Post and Courier, showed that the power company could cut electric rates at least 13% without going bankrupt. Maybe they'd rather go bankrupt. Deadline Toledo, Ohio, another U.S. utility, has announced plans to close its nuclear power operations as the industry struggles to compete with plants that burn natural gas, which is plentiful and inexpensive. First Energy may, may want to change its name, too. says its three plants in Ohio and Pennsylvania will close within the next three years, barring a last-minute deal. Deal would involve, I guess, subsidies. The company said it's willing to work with both states. Yeah, to find a way to keep the plants open, but lawmakers remain unwilling to offer a financial rescue. It appears the plants are nearing a shutdown. The natural gas boom and the increasing use of renewable energy have squeezed the nation's aging nuclear reactors. Well, that would make them work harder, wouldn't it? This is according to the Washington Post, which are expensive to operate and maintain. New York and Illinois have responded to the situation by giving out billion-dollar bailouts that will be paid by ratepayers, i.e. you, me, John Q., you, to stop unprofitable nuclear plants from closing But similar proposals have been met with resistance in Connecticut, New Jersey, Ohio, and Pennsylvania because such subsidies would cause a rise in utility bills. You don't want that? What the hell is wrong with you? Clean, cheap, too expensive to meet our friend the Atom. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Let Us Try, a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try. Stem the tide to beautify our countryside. We offer you our hand. Let us try. 
Next month, the agency that oversees the hurricane protection system, so-called around New Orleans, is expected to take over new pumping stations at the mouths of the three canals that carry stormwater into Lake Pontchartrain. This will mark the end of a decade-long saga of broken and corroded pumps, construction delays, and millions of dollars in repairs that may have been preventable, according to the LENS in New Orleans. Six, two, since 2006, as you may know if you saw the big uneasy, temporary temporary pumping stations have experienced serious failures due to problems, including rust pumps in the water. Who would have thought rust would happen? Pumps have been removed for repairs during hurricane season, sometimes for months, causing critics to venture that communities weren't properly protected. Many of those repairs could have been prevented if the Army Corps of Engineers had chosen stainless steel pumps that resist corrosion. That's according to, among others, Matt McBride, who has chronicled the problems. He's a mechanical engineer and has a blog called Fix the Pumps. Thank goodness for the Freedom of Information Act, he says, because it allows us to push past the well-financed public affairs curtain and see the entire rusty pump story. Wasn't she a friend of Stormy Daniels? For what it is, a fiasco six years in the making. It would have taken more time to get better pumps. The Corps was racing against the clock to get the temporary pumps installed for the 2006 hurricane season. By McBride's count, between 2006 and this, sorry, last year, the Corps removed pumps about 50 times from the canals in New Orleans to repair or replace them. By 2012, it concluded the corrosion problem was a fiasco six years in the making. Some pumps had been pulled for repairs three times. Now, all the pumps at the mouths of the outfall canals in New Orleans use stainless steel. That according to the spokesman for the Army Corps. That came just in time for those corrosion-resistant replacements to be irrelevant as the temporary pumping stations are about to be shut down and disassembled as the permanent ones, which have been under construction for the last three four years, start up. The Corps announced it expected to finish work on the permanent stations by 2013. The contract wasn't even awarded until 2013. In New Orleans, all the hydraulic pumps with carbon steel components at the mouths of the three canals were pulled out and repaired or refitted. The Boyette, the spokesman for the Corps of Engineers, never answered questions from the lens about how much those repairs cost. According to McBride, the engineer-slash-blogger, the cost of corrosion-related repairs was at least $8.5 million, but that doesn't include every pump that was repaired. H.J. Bosworth, an engineer who closely followed the Corps through his work with levies.org, said the agency dropped the ball installing the temporary pumps. Quote, it was just a complicated mess of a lot of things that can go wrong. Since it is submerged, says a top official with the Louisiana Flood Protection Authority, it shouldn't have been made with carbon steel because that material will corrode. McBride raised questions about corrosion more than a decade ago, well before the pump should have required repairs. He filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the Corps and obtained reports, emails, memos, receipts, and photographs. They revealed the Corps had found corrosion as early as June 2006 when the pumps first went online. And the Corps said, hey, we've done something to prevent Katrina from happening again.
In a blog post in 2010, McBride criticized the company that had built the pumps, Moving Water Industries, based in Florida, after its employees claimed they had not been informed that their equipment would sit in brackish water. McBride pointed out that its employees were in New Orleans right after the storm and would have seen how the floodwater killed everything it touched. Critics said the political connections of the company played a role in it winning the contract. The company once employed Jeb Bush. It's a low-energy company. The Government Accountability Office of the U.S. government investigated the Corps' decision to buy those pumps and concluded the Corps had valid reasons for deciding to buy those pumps, believing it would provide some immediate protection, even if it couldn't handle a severe storm. Well, who needs protection against that? McBride wrote in his blog in 2012, the Corps would rather the public didn't bother with such details as whether the pumps work under storm conditions or if they have crippling design flaws or if the salt water in Lake Pontchartrain is turning them into rusty heaps. That's because they know if the public were privy to all those pesky details, they might freak out over how scary the story is. When asked about whether the Corps made a mistake procuring pumps made with carbon steel, Bosworth said, You don't use toy parts in your car, you use real automobile parts. You don't use little engines for big trucks, and your exhaust systems in your cars don't rust out anymore because you use stainless steel. Let us try, ladies and gentlemen, the motto of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Gentlemen, that's it's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at this same time. If you listen to it at the same time over your audio device of choice, that's kind of up to you. Why do you love freedom so much? And it would be just like pumps working. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the, sh- the show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson, tenuously related to WWNO New Orleans, for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, the one that can reach me personally, the playlist of the music heard here on, heard by you personally, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t shirts. Just in time for Memorial Day? Really? All at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter, relentlessly tweeting at the Harry Shearer. If you have not heard, Spinal Tap the Band has um, dissipated, hate to say broken up, but dissipated, and Derek Smalls, the lead bassist in the band, is uh, embarking on a solo project, 
which has its first iteration, first performance in the known world, April 14th. Lukewarm Water Live, an adventure in loud music with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, seriously, at the Sanger Theater in New Orleans. Will I see you there? special New Orleans musical guests, of course, because it's New Orleans. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless.